Sarah and I were gone for a couple weeks on a vacation. Got to go to Thailand. Had a lot of fun there. You know, in certain times of the year, you can fly to Thailand for the same price that you could fly to Atlanta. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's an awesome opportunity, but our bodies are still about 14 hours ahead, so if I start to repeat myself, repeat myself, repeat myself, it, it may be, yeah, I might need a little bump to get me out of the next line there. Two weeks ago, we spent Sabbath in Bangkok at the International Church. Uh, there they, they spoke in English, and it was a blessing. Got to see some, some neat things. Ken, if you could move the computer this way a little bit, it might. Yeah, here's the headquarters of the Adventist Church in Thailand, and there's an ABC. I don't know if they sell fried chicken there or not, but uh, we got to, got to see that. Um, I think if you rotate it a little bit, the, the top. Yeah, they also do the 10 days of prayer there. So this is not something that's just unique to here. Oh, thanks. Um, it's a worldwide event. So when we, every January, do 10 days of prayer, brothers and sisters around the world are also praying and participating. And I, I took a short video clip here. I won't show you the whole thing, but they like to have their young people sing also in church. So this girl is, I don't know, about three or four years old. Anyways, uh, if you want to see the rest of it, you can ask me later. They love their kids getting up and participating in church there, too. Because of Easter, we're taking a short break from our series on the last days, but still, we're going to be hanging out in the book of Revelation. You know, with all the people we've been losing in our church lately, the message of the death, burial, and especially the resurrection of Jesus is especially important. Uh, if you're able to make it out Thursday at 11, we're having a service, as you know, for Virginia Matthews. And then next week, uh, 4 p.m. here, Judy Perry. But today the sermon title is Revelation's Paradoxes. What's a paradox? Just raise your hand. Give me, give me your definition of what a paradox is. Anybody have an idea? Okay, well, I, I'm happy to read one here. From Webster's Dictionary, a paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained might actually prove to be true. Said a little bit more simply, it's something that seems impossible but actually can be possible. Uh, it doesn't seem likely at first, but in the end it actually is. And then you've heard of the, the term oxymoron before. An oxymoron is like a paradox, except it's two words that seem opposite that are put together. So, for example, the term jumbo shrimp is an oxymoron because you don't expect those words. Or some people say honest politician would be an oxymoron. You don't seem to exist. Uh, drawing a blank. How do you draw a blank? Right? Or you say, oh, that was awfully good, honey. That meal was awfully good. Okay. What do you mean by that? Or something can be a bittersweet experience. 
bittersweet. Doesn't seem to quite make sense. Or you can say, yeah, the noise was at a dull roar, right? Those two words don't seem to go together, but it, they are oxymorons. Or somebody says, well, let me give you an exact estimate for what this is going to cost you. An exact estimate. Oxymoron, it's a type of paradox. Paradoxes just aren't two, two words side by side. It's more of a situation that doesn't seem possible. But upon investigation, it actually can be possible. You know, I've got a book on my shelf in my office, unless I lost it, called Bible Paradoxes. And it highlights a lot of the paradoxes that we find in Scripture, like this concept of victory through surrender. How does that make sense, right? From just a, a linguistic perspective, it doesn't make sense, but that's the only way that we achieve victory is through surrender. What about the virgin birth? From a scientific standpoint, that's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Even the paradox of the virgin birth. Jesus said, I want you to rest under my yoke. I've got some burdens, but they're light. Doesn't make a lot of sense from a worldly perspective. What about God's ability to know the future? And yet, somehow, we still at the same time have free will. That's a hard one for some people to understand. God knows the future, but he's not controlling our future. If we were to freely choose something different, God would see something different. It's up to us, but God somehow can see it. And he's doing everything he can to make sure he helps us as much as possible. Jesus himself was fully divine, but fully human. Can you wrap your mind around that one? Well, what about the nature of the Godhead? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three, yet one. That's a paradox, if there ever was one. The Bible itself is God's Word, but it's given to us through humans, through human messengers. Uh, seems to be a paradox in itself. But in the book of Revelation, we find some particularly interesting ones. We find the lamb-like beast that comes uh, after the sea beast. How can a beast be like a lamb? Well, what about the deadly wound that was healed? If a wound is deadly, you should stay dead, right? But Revelation 13 talks about this wound that gets healed. Then we've got the sea of glass that the righteous will stand on. A sea of glass, and it's mingled with fire. Fire and water and glass and... I don't know what John was seeing, but it sounds paradoxical. What about this one? Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. And war broke out in where? Heaven. That doesn't seem like a situation that should happen or could happen, but yet it did. The dragon in Revelation 13 receives the worship of the whole world. From what we know about Satan, there is no reason that he should be worshipped. Amen? All sorts of interesting paradoxes in the book of Revelation. What about where it talks about, in Revelation chapter 20, it says, but the rest of the dead did not live again. You think the dead would, should just stay dead from an earthly standpoint. But Revelation talks about this paradox of the, of the, the resurrection. You know, of all the paradoxes in Revelation, 
the most interesting ones come in studying Jesus. Revelation is not primarily about the beasts and those things. Revelation is primarily about Jesus. And so I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, and I want to explore some of these paradoxes about Jesus as we think about it in the context of this Easter weekend. A weekend we celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Revelation chapter what? Chapter 1. Right. From the very beginning, Revelation 1 verse 1, it says it's the revelation of who? Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. It's a revelation of Jesus. And look at verse 8. Look at one of these paradoxical statements that Christ makes about himself. Revelation chapter 8, or 1 verse 8, I am the what? Alpha and what? Omega. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. That doesn't make a lot of sense from an earthly standpoint. I'm the A and I'm the Z. Well, you can't be both. You can't be all. Pick one. Nope. Jesus says, I'm the beginning and I'm the end. Notice he doesn't say, I am just after the beginning and the end. You know, some people are teaching that today. Jesus was created a little bit after the beginning. Uh, but that's not what he says here. He says, I am the beginning. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. Right? Christ has always existed. The Father has always existed. The Holy Spirit has always existed. Our minds can't comprehend that because we all have beginnings. And if the Lord doesn't come back, we have an end, at least a temporary end. Jesus says he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. <coughs> says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. There's a lot to wrap your mind around in that verse. Jesus is the divine paradox of Revelation. The one who's always been, the one who is, and the one who is to come. But then later in Revelation, you don't have to turn there, but Revelation 13, verse 8, it says Jesus is the Lamb slain from when? From the foundation of the world. Now here's another paradox. Because how, when was Christ crucified? When was, when was he crucified? Approximately. How many approximate in thousands? Yeah, we'll just say roughly 2,000 years ago, right? But yet, the Bible says he was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, there was a promise and a decision that was made eons ago that Jesus was going to be our substitute life. That Jesus was going to lay down his life thousands of years in the future to rescue fallen humanity. And so because of that promise, the people in the Old Testament were saved who accepted the blood of the Lamb. Because of that promise, because of the reality, we are saved who we accept that sacrifice and accept that reality. So, so Jesus not only has, has been from the beginning, but he, from the beginning of our world, made a commitment to save us, to save you. That means before you were even born, 
Jesus said, I'm going to save them. I'm, I'm going to make provision for them to accept my sacrifice. I'm going to be their substitute life, their substitute death, their substitute resurrection. Notice Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Revelation 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and the firstborn from the what? The dead. The dead. Firstborn from the dead. Those aren't terms you expect to see together very often, right? Miss Eva was asking who are the firstborn, right? A children's story. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Now, it's an interesting term, the firstborn, because it could mean that you are literally the, the very firstborn, or it could mean that you are the most important. Uh, because Jesus, according to the Bible, raised a couple people up from the grave even before his resurrection. But he's the most important. He's got power over the grave. Scientifically, resurrections don't happen. When you're dead, you stay dead. We can't demonstrate resurrection in a laboratory. It's a great paradox of Scripture, but it's a reality. As we sung already this morning, we serve a risen Savior. And there are many evidences. We spoke last year, the evidence of the empty tomb pointing to the resurrection of Christ. But as we sung in the song today, one of the reasons we know that he lives is because he's in our heart. Because we encounter him in our experience. And it's a very real experience. Firstborn from the dead. Look at verses 17 and 18 in chapter 1. Jesus, the divine paradox that's always existed. The divine paradox who committed himself to saving humanity before we were even born. Verse 17 and 18. It says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he said, he, he, he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of what? Death. death. Hades, the symbol for the grave and death. Jesus said, I've been there and I've done that. I experienced death not just the, the first death, he experienced the second death, the death from which there should be no resurrection. And so he's the very best one to take to him our fears about our life, our fears about dying, our fears about our loved ones who've passed or will pass. He said, I've been there, I've done that, I've got the keys, and his revelation in the end tells us he's going to destroy death once and for all. Amen. Yes. But from a worldly perspective, this doesn't make any sense. This is a total paradox. Jesus has the key to death, the key to the grave. I have friends, and when they lose loved ones, they don't ever expect to see their loved ones again. Because they don't hold the hope and reality that we have that Christ went into the tomb and he came back out. And because of that, we can have that same hope and assurance for our loved ones who've died in Christ. We can have that same assurance for us should we perish. We will be brought out of that tomb with a brand new body. 
This is the divine paradox of Christ, the Lamb, of Christ, the one who has the keys of Hades and of death. You know, it's interesting, in Revelation, we see over and over again glimpses and um, images of Christ and his resurrection, but we also see counterfeit resurrection that we mentioned earlier. Everything that Jesus is trying to do, Satan is trying to do also. And so Revelation 13, as you recall from our studies, there's that counterfeit resurrection, that deadly wound that is healed, and, and that counterfeit resurrection causes everybody in the world to wander after the beast. There's only one true resurrection, and that's the resurrection of Jesus, our Lamb. Jesus, from the beginning to the end, He's always been, He's always promised salvation. He promises power over the grave. And he promises triumph. As we look at him, one of the, the most important symbols of Christ in Revelation is him as a lamb. This symbol uh, appears time and time again. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Look at, look at what we have here with Jesus as the conquering lamb. You know, if you're going to pick a symbol for triumph and for victory, a lamb is probably not your first choice. Like, have you noticed sports teams, the animals and the mascots that they choose? Like, like basketball, the Golden State, what is it? Lambs, right? Golden State lambs. And then in hockey, you got the San Jose sheep. She oh, shark. Sharks, right? Sharks are scary. So, let's going to have that as our team mascot. And warriors, that sounds aggressive. That'll be our team mascot. People don't tend to pick fluffy little lambs, right? So it's ironic, it's paradoxical that Jesus appears again and again as a victorious and a conquering lamb in Revelation. Notice Revelation chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. <clears throat> Saying with a loud voice, worthy, <clears throat> excuse me, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, Strength, honor, glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and as such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. At his enthronement scene there in heaven, all the angelic beings worshipped the Lamb. Notice also, Revelation chapter 6, turn there. Revelation 6, verse 16 and 17. Revelation 6, verse 16 and 17. And said to the mountains and the rocks, this is the wicked at the return of Jesus, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the what? of the lamb. This lamb appears and they're terrified. That's not a scene you'd expect to see, right? For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? The ones who can stand, as we identified already, are those who <clears throat> who've identified themselves and given themselves over to the lamb. 
There's another passage, though, that makes this even clearer. Go to Revelation 17. Revelation 17, verse 14. We're so used to these scenes, these images, that they don't seem odd to us. But for somebody who's never read the Bible, a lamb who's conquering the world, that's odd. Somebody who pops up out of the grave, that doesn't happen. Somebody who's been around forever and is going to be around forever, that doesn't make sense. But notice what it says here, Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14. These will make war with the who? The Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. If you want to be on the winning team, you need the Lamb as your mascot. The Lamb as your king. The Lamb as your savior. Jesus is this great paradox in Scripture. Paradox in Revelation. But you know, he invites us to participate in these paradoxical things. These things that don't seem like they should make sense, but somehow they're reality and they're true. Though it seemed impossible, Jesus lived that perfect life. Though it doesn't make sense, he died for us and committed to that long before we were even born, while, even before we had been created. Though science can't demonstrate it, he came out of the grave and ascended to heaven, and he defeated Satan every single time he faced him. And one day he's going to destroy death and sin forever. But notice with me, go back to the beginning of Revelation, because I want you to see how we are invited to participate in this paradox. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. Look at the second half of verse 5. It says, To him who loved us and did what? Washed us from our sins. How? With his own blood and has made us kings and priests to God the Father and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He washes us with what? His blood. Have you ever had a stain in your clothing before? Yeah, blood stains. What do you do for blood when it's on your clothes? Cold water, hydrogen peroxide. Okay. What do you do for chapstick in the dryer? Because I did that. And we're going to go to the stores tomorrow and buy some more pants. I wrecked a lot of pants. Believe me, I've tried. I've tried to get it out. Uh, it's okay, they were old anyways. So, you don't think of blood as a cleansing agent, Right? We're used to it because we've grown up Christians, many of us. But to, from a world standpoint, this sounds crazy. Wait, you're going to drink the blood of Jesus and eat his flesh at communion? That's disgusting. Wait, you're going to be cleansed by his blood? I don't want blood. Yeah, these things are crazy from a worldly perspective. That's why Paul said, man, the cross is foolishness. For those who don't believe. It doesn't make any sense. But for us, it's the power of God. The cleansing blood of Jesus. You know, in Thailand, we were there over the New Year for the, the Thai people. And they had a, a celebration called Songkran. And it was basically a three-day celebration, depending on where in the country you were, where they celebrated the New Year and they would pour water or squirt water or dump water on people as a symbol of washing away the bad 
from the previous year. Um, but basically, it's a big water fight for the whole country. And we'll see if we can pull up a couple of pictures. We were on an island for, for part of that time where, yeah, so they are not polite uh, during Songkran. You can go to the next slide there. Somebody told me that they, they were in a, a car or they saw this happen. You're in a car, doors shut, windows shut, people open up the car door and throw in a bucket of water on you. So you just can't do anything. You can go to the next slide there too. Thanks, Ken. Um, anyways, this is the type of thing that, that happens. And because for them, it's number one, the hottest time of the year, and so it feels really good. But there is a deeper, in the Buddhist thinking, a deeper significance. This is a cleansing away of your bad. But reality is, it's just a big water fight. Uh, and where we were, uh, one of the places they said, you got to be careful because they get the water out of the moat. And the water in the moat is really disgusting. So, you know, keep your mouth shut if you're getting splashed because you don't want that water. It'll make you sick. You know, close your eyes when that happens. All sorts of things. But Jesus' blood is not like this water. It actually has the power to cleanse. Take away our sins. We can be free from our past sins. All because of what Christ has done for us. Go to Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. I want to see one more verse along these lines. Revelation 7, verse 14. We highlighted this verse a few weeks ago, but it's such a good one, we're coming back to it. We can participate in the paradox of Christ through his cleansing blood. Verse 14, And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation, and they've washed their robes and made them what color? White. White. In the blood of the Lamb. If you have given your life to Jesus, you have participated in the paradox of the cleansing blood of Jesus. But not only that, there's more. He not only offers cleansing, but go to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, a few more verses before we close it out for the day. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. He not only offers cleansing, but he offers power. And they overcame him by the blood of who? The Lamb. The Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. The saints overcame the dragon Satan by the power of the Lamb, of the Lamb's blood. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Jesus offers us cleansing. He offers us power. And he offers us something more. We've talked about it already, but we'll look at it here. Revelation chapter 20, verse 5 and 6. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has a part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death has how much power? No power. And they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. This is awesome. We have the promise and reality of resurrection through Christ. Doesn't make sense. But it's a reality that is true. And then we get to reign with Christ as kings and as priests. All of us. 
We get royalty. We get priestly status. And let's look at the last verse for today, Revelation 21. Through Christ, through the divine paradox of Jesus, we get something else. And this is one of the things I'm looking forward to most. Revelation 21, verse 4. And God will wipe away every what? Tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will freely give the fountain of the water of life to him that thirsts. Jesus offers us cleansing. He offers us power to overcome. He offers us life and resurrection power, royal and priestly status, and he offers us healing from all of our sorrows and all of our pain. You know, one of the saddest paradoxes in all of Scripture, in all of life, is the reality that this is being offered to every human being. The good news of Jesus. The good news of the Gospel. The good news of Scripture. But the sad paradox is that many will turn away from this and not accept. That doesn't make any sense. Why would you ever turn away from all of these good things? Why would you turn away from everlasting life in a perfect place of happiness and peace? I don't know the answer to that question because my choice is that I want to accept it. How about you? Just raise your hand with me. If, if you want to accept the blessings and the gifts of God, and you're grateful for them, just raise your hand. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the promises and the paradoxes that we have through Jesus, the reality that we are saved in you, that we, if we should pass away, will be resurrected, that we have power in this life to overcome through your blood. You're giving us and have given us royal and priestly status. And Lord, we're looking forward to that day when you wipe away all tears from our eyes and you make all things new. Lord, we have friends and we have family members and we have neighbors, co-workers, people we haven't even met yet who need to hear this message, who need to accept this message. Lord, we today have raised our hands and we said, yes, Jesus, we want to accept again the goodness of the gospel in all its fullness. Lord, we ask you to strengthen us and embolden us and empower us to share this good news so that others might join your family of faith. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a happy Sabbath. God bless you and have a blessed weekend.